Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 131. Today we have the privilege of talking to Jordan Wales, who's actually a philosopher and theologian who spoke at the Society of Catholic Scientists conference in June, talking about the subject of the conference being intelligences beyond the human, or perhaps below the human. He talked about the role that human appearing artificial intelligence has begun to play and will continue to play in our lives. We bring up some really interesting topics, including the origin of the term person, in the ancient phrase, in the ancient word persona, which originally meant something more like a theatrical role or mask. We also talk about the things, you know, very concrete things like how badly dealing with AI that's simply constructed to please us is uh, for training us from a very young age to deal with other people who have actual needs badly. So this is a really compelling conversation for the world that we've begun to live in, and we're happy to bring it to you. So here's Jordan Wales. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. We are very pleased to have on the podcast today, Jordan Wales. He's an associate professor at Hillsdale College. He has his PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame. And he is the John and Helen Kuzmarski Chair in Theology there at Hillsdale. Uh, he gave a talk at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference in June on the subject of living with social AI. And we are really intrigued to have the chance to talk to him here on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Wales. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, and we have uh, Bill, trusty co-host again today, uh, was, yes, wasn't able to have him on board for Natasha's uh, uh, interview last uh, for last episode, but we're glad to have him today, especially since uh, this, this subject cuts across, of course, everyone's lives today, since well, everyone who interacts with technology, which is, I suppose there's some people in the Amazon who don't do that yet, but uh, yeah, more and more of us to a larger and larger extent are dealing with these issues. So. Could you, I mean, for all the people, for all of us uh, who did listen to your talk at the at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference, we know it was a really fascinating talk. So we'd like to spend a little bit of time sort of uh, just sort of hitting a, a few of the highlights there, mostly to encourage people to go to the Society of Catholic Scientists website and watch the talk in its entirety, because it's well worth it. Um, would you mind giving just a brief outline of, of what you, the, the points you discussed there were? Yeah, sure, Paul. Uh, the The basic question I wanted to take up was, uh, what does it mean to live with uh, apparently personal artificial intelligences? Uh, we already can, we can talk to Siri. There were uh, some uh, fun ads from the Google Duplex service that uh, showed how persuasive it was at reserving a table at a restaurant. But that's not really what I have in mind. Uh, what I have in mind is uh, artificial intelligence that will uh, enable us to have conversations with it that won't just respond to our queries, but that will really give us the experience of talking to a person. In other words, our artificial intelligence that within some uh, kind of, uh, within certain constraints will pass the so-called Turing test, right? The, 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 the experiential test of does it persuade you that you're talking to a real person? 
And uh, I take up a few questions in the talk, <clears throat> which is, uh, first of all, what are we talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence? How would something like this work? Uh, and then the second uh, question I touch upon is, is what would it effect be? Uh, and then thirdly, we have to ask, uh, how are we changed? What do we become? What are What is the impact on our life through interacting with uh, a device like this? And uh, fourthly, um, uh, what might be a way of living well with it? And the the in a nutshell, the the overarching theme of my talk was that uh, with today's technology, uh, it just uh, it does not seem possible to create an artificial intelligence that would actually have a subjective experience of its own, uh, one that could be very persuasively apparently personal, but would not actually have an inner life. And so that's the real quandary. That's the the paradox: is what does it mean? to interact with a consumer product that has been designed to give us the experience of interacting with a person. And that experience is part of the product that's being sold to us. Because of course, these things will be available uh, by subscription. You can imagine um, uh, therapy apps, uh, uh, virtual girlfriend apps or, or boyfriend apps. These, these exist and are already quite popular in uh, Japan. And uh, there are a couple available in uh, that are popular in Europe as well. Uh, and the the in certain relationships, like when you go to Starbucks and order a coffee, or if you uh, uh, go to a doctor's office or to a therapist, there are certain services you're looking for that person, uh, looking for from that person. And in a way, the personhood, the individuality of that person is submerged within their role in providing you with coffee or uh, helping you uh, sort through your own inner life in therapy. And that's fine. That's, that's exactly what uh, those services are. But when the service being offered is the appearance of personhood, we run into a, we run into a strange moral dilemma. And the moral dilemma is that if I am paying for the apparently personal services of some app on my phone, because I want to have a confidant, I want the experience of friendship, but I want it to fulfill certain requirements. And those requirements are kind of dictated by my needs, by my perceived desires. And so in a way, the, the apparent person that I'm paying for is really just a, a kind of projection of what I want. And if it's not, I'm going to go to a different app. I uh, downloaded a scheduling app that was supposed to help me and my wife coordinate the, the very complex schedule of, of us and our, our three children. I don't know how people with more children manage to do it. With three, it's, it's, I'm already in over my head. And I downloaded the scheduling app and I couldn't, I couldn't make it work very well within a couple of hours of playing with it. So I deleted it and downloaded a different one and found the one that would work. Uh, and that is, that's fine for scheduling apps. That's even fine for therapists. But when we talk about that for friends, we're moving into a different territory because we've turned the personal into a commodity. And that's what the apparently personal but non-subjective AI will live with, uh, will, will, uh, will give to us. That's the situation we'll enter into. So that's the, that's the general problematic that I take up in my talk. Mm. That is something. Yeah, yeah. But the, the first reaction I have is that, uh, sadly, one might argue... Uh, a lot of folks already today are growing up to uh, relate with other real people as a kind of uh, uh, functionaries or artificial or just just to give me, just serve me 
in the way I want to be be served. So it's almost like uh, the uh, the marketplace is giving us more of what we already want. That's I, I think that's really true, Bill, and uh, something that I've been working on in my own uh, scholarship is really reflecting on the historical meaning of the word person. Uh, the Roman word, uh, the Latin word persona in ancient Rome originally referred to a, a theatrical mask that would be worn on stage. And then persona came to refer to a role played by an actor in a play. And we still do that when we talk about someone someone adopting a persona. Uh, and there's something false. There's a, there's a kind of performative dimension to the persona that goes beyond what we have in ordinary life. Uh, and, and so the ancient Roman view of the persona was as a social role. And you can see that in ancient Rome, to a certain extent, your dignity, your worth, your, your kind of sense of existing at all comes from your service to your family and your service to the Roman state. Uh, and there isn't a kind of intrinsic worth beyond that or before that. And when we start treating people like that, uh, when we start looking for the friends that uh, that simply amuse us or or that can provide us with a leg up on the career ladder, uh, we are we are to some extent living as less than full persons. We're living more as ancient Roman persons, uh, looking to others for the way that they fulfill a certain role that our desires have defined in our lives. Christianity introduced something very different. Um, due to uh, a sort of just perhaps uh, the happenstance of the terminology available at the time, uh, earliest accounts of the Trinity refer to the Trinity as personae, even while Tertullian, uh, writing in the early third century, is, is eager to say that by persona, he does not mean masks, he does not mean historical roles, he means uh, someone, three someones who exist as one, uh, and so the, with the doctrine of the Trinity, you have, uh, you have these three personae, and they're not masks or roles, but what are they? And as Christian reflection develops over the years, uh, there emerges this conviction that the three personae exist by giving themselves to one another. They aren't three gods who've entered into a relationship. They are three persons of one God who exist by their relationship. If you take one away, the other two would disappear. They would, they would cease to exist. And so the relationality of these three persons, the self-donation of these three persons is that by which they exist. And that's variously cashed out philosophically and metaphysically uh, in, uh, in the various early Christian writers, but that's the general consensus for looking at the Trinity. And this radically altered the ancient world's way of talking about persons. Now, the persona was not a particular role that one plays in the lives of others or in the state. The persona is who one is. And one exists fully personally by engaging in compassionate acts of self-donation by which one's own interiority uh, shares in the interiority of another person in a kind of uh, dim echo of the life of the Trinity. We can talk about the love between friends who uh, 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 friends who care for one another, not just in the sense of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, but friends who enter into one another's suffering, enter into one another's joy, and live more fully personally in that empathic fellowship with one another. And that is the way that uh, 
that early and medieval Christians came to understand the way that we as separate persons uh, echo the all at once eternal life of the three persons of the Trinity. So to treat one another as service providers, even in the most intimate relationships as friends or spouses, lovers, uh, parents and children, uh, though that is actually from a Christian perspective, an impersonal way of treating one another. Uh, and the more that we live in a world uh, that sort of fulfills our desires on demand, uh, the more in which uh, the sort of the smart homes of the future and the AI service providers anticipate our desires and provide for them, that, that those will all in some ways be great things. But if we begin to expect, if we begin to conflate um, the personhood of others with the service of our desires on demand, then we, we actually begin to lose that sense of interpersonal communion and slip back into the persona as the uh, service-providing mask. Right, just a mask, yeah. Oh, there's almost too many points of departure in that. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Sorry, I'm, a, I'm a, being a professor. I tend to talk at length. Oh yeah, no, I do. I do the identical thing, Doctor Wales. I do the identical thing. That's something that I have to work on um, continuously. It requires constant vigilance. Um, yeah, yeah, especially yeah. I'm I'm going to be obliged to teach a very you know basic level field science course where I get to spend three whole weeks on geology, and I just don't know how I'm even going to cope. It's oh, too exciting. There's just too much. There's just too yes. much. Um. One of the points of, of departure from that that I could see um, that's maybe most closely tied to the subject um, that you discussed at the conference is that in a way we're almost, we've created, I mean, in a sense, first of all, we are, we're almost regressing the term persona, perhaps, or at least we're digging up something and maybe we're not even calling it a person. We're not calling it a person, but um but we've created something that's almost the platonic form, if you will, if you can even use the term platonic form of something arguably evil, or at least, you know, profoundly neutral, um, that, you know, we, we've created this freestanding persona. It doesn't even need a person to wear the mask. It is the mask. It's a, it's yes. a freestanding mask. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the whole concept that, you know, this is something that I like to, you know, the, the sense that we're sort of, I mean, the problem with being politically conservative, which I don't, you know, but certainly I personally don't um, completely adopt that label for myself, but that's, you know, the people that I spend more time with. Um, and I certainly have points in common with them. You know, the I, there, there's sort of the implicit, you know, idea that there is a golden age in the past. We just need to go back to that golden age. There, this is, you know, the, the forces that are pushing us to use this technology in these ways have existed throughout all of humanity. And in the ancient world, you know, especially the Roman world, I remember reading um, or listening to a, a book about, you know, actually the Romans wars with Mithridates where the, the point was made in passing that actually the Romans were among the biggest slave mongers in the Mediterranean world. Um, they had slaves, they had prostitutes, they had all sorts of people that they objectified and used for, you know, the 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 desires of you know the wealthy basically or at least the moderately wealthy yeah there's a certain kind of conservatism uh that uh i won't try to label it because i'm not an expert in these in these different streams of thought but there's a certain kind of conservatism that would argue 
uh, that we are fundamentally distorted as human beings, that we have uh, riotous impulses, uh, we act as uh, somewhat selfish, and that, uh, and then there's a variety of ways of dealing with this problem. Uh, one way would, or one of the elements of dealing with it would be to say that, well, uh, you, like if you look back to the American founding, well, through association in religious communities, we kind of regulate ourselves morally, and through the government's protection of our individual rights, we make sure that in our in our striving for whatever we're striving for, we're not allowed to trample on others. Um, then there is uh, there is a more traditionalist strand to conservatism that you were that you were gesturing to, Paul, uh, which says that uh, you know there's there's a certain way humans have settled into a way of dealing with this, even into a way of flourishing, and that those ways are brought forward in our traditions. And so, by maintaining our traditions, our, our reverence for our forefathers, we both uh, decenter ourselves. Uh, we we look to something beyond ourselves, someone before ourselves, uh, so that we don't become the arbiters of what's uh, what's good in our own lives, because you know we're not necessarily trustworthy judges of that, and we are kind of schooled into a tradition. Uh, so, in a, in certain ways, all of those those various ways of dealing with the problem of human unreliability uh, can are reconcilable with and even have their roots in Christianity. Uh, but what uh, what a theological perspective would want to add is that, yes, as you pointed out, Paul, or as you're gesturing, we're all fallen. And so in a certain sense, there never was a golden age or there was a very brief golden age. Uh, our ability to look back to the way things should be uh, gives us a standard for which to strive. And our are also conviction that something has gone wrong enables us to recognize the ways in which uh, we are not necessarily utterly trustworthy guides to the way we ought to live. And this is particularly applicable to the question of apparently personal artificial intelligences that, um, that we kind of have a, a, have a dilemma. It feels real, but it's not real. If I take it as real, if I take this service provider as a real person, this AI that I've downloaded and I'll just delete it if, if there's if it doesn't do as well as the next one. If I take it, if I if I sort of follow my empathic intuition to consider it as a real person, <clears throat> then I've essentially accepted comfort with slaveholding. <clears throat> or at the at the very least, uh, it's it's sort of like growing up in Downton Abbey where they're real persons, they have some rights, but you know they'll be fired if they don't do what I need them to do. Uh, and that's the totality of this, this thing's apparent personhood. So one can accept comfort with slaveholding. There are other AI ethicists who argue that we should really resist this feeling and that proper, I have in mind uh, Joanna Bryson, and she argues that proper education of uh, the end user uh, will help us to recognize the error in our intuitions and help us to transcend this, this uh, inclination to treat this, this tool as personal. And we can recognize it merely as a tool, treat it as a tool, and not have that spill over into our relationships with others. Um, there are other AI ethicists who say that um, that's impossible uh, and so either we should uh, grant rights to the robot for its own sake or for ours, uh, or we should have a more kind of fluid notion of what the personal is. The difficulty with all of these things is that <clears throat> you end up, just in terms of human 
emotional experience and intuitions. One ends up in the in the uh, quandary of either uh, accepting some personal dimension to this tool that I own, or numbing myself against its personal uh, behavior uh, in order to treat it as a tool. And it seems that either way, because our experience of the AI as personal flows from our ability to experience one another as personal, then either numbing myself to it or accepting it is going to necessarily spill over into my relations with, with other people because it's already rooted in the faculty that I have. It's already rooted in my ability to uh, perceive people as people. And so what are we to do with this? Uh, the, the reduction of, getting back to your point, Paul, about uh, all of us being fallen, in Christian theology, the reduction of other persons to the services they can provide is what Augustine describes as, as pride. Uh, pride is not just a kind of healthy sense of my own accomplishments. Uh, pride is really a preference for domination over self-gift. And to dominate others, uh, you know, the Romans, as Augustine points out in the City of God, the Romans quite attempted that with their worldwide empire. Uh, but really, I can't dominate everyone else. I can't set myself free from my need for other persons. Ultimately, I cannot set myself free of my need for God uh, because I can't conquer the whole world. And so what I try to do is I conquer the world instead in my mind. I reassess the value of the world in terms of something I can control. And this is an old story. I mean, think of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Why does he weigh everything in terms of money? And why is he so profoundly lonely? But why does he cling to it? Because that's the loneliness that masquerades as control. That's the loneliness that masquerades as the kind of self-constituted independence that really only God has. Um, but in Christianity, God is not independent of everything so that he doesn't need everybody. God is independent of everything, and that's what enables him to fully, freely give himself to everybody. So uh, so what the apparently personal AI schools us in is the potential for pride, the reduction of others to something I can measure and I can control, which is my evaluation of their service to my life. And this is why Augustine argues that Roman society, which reduces everybody to their social role is, uh, is an inherently uh, pride-founded, it's an inherently prideful society that's going to destroy itself. And so when the Roman Empire was crumbling, Augustine said, this is why, because you've reduced the person to something you can control, reduced the person to its, to, you've reduced the person to the persona and uh, uh, in your bid to escape from your need for God. And that's an inherently self-destructive enterprise. What regenerate societies because of course you know the whole i mean that, that's that's another whole question that you know starts to branch off from from what we've already talked about but what you know, that's that's i think that's a great puzzle of history is that clearly societies decay political you know groupings decay for certain what regenerates them i mean you look at the mess that was the late roman empire and then you look at the mess of all of the things that happened to it from the Germans, like me, uh, my ancestors <laughs> invading, um, or, or at least just making life difficult for them. You know, the, the Arab conquests on the other end, you know, all of the stuff that happened in the middle of the first millennium, 
what happened? You know, how did how did something new get constituted out of that? I mean, you know, the 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 world at the turn of the first to the second millennium didn't, you know, Europe didn't look like a very promising seedbed for things. What happened? Um, and, and likewise, in this case, you know, if, if we're degenerating into this in, in this particular way, can we see any ways out that we could attempt to, you know, make our way to the exit more quickly than than uh, sort of forcing ourselves to play this game to the bitter end? That's a, that's an excellent question. I, I mean, in a certain way, and, and here I'll paint with a very broad brush and offend lots of people who actually know more about these things than I do. Um, if you think about great uh, social reform movements um, and, and revolutionary movements, uh, think about the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity. Uh, think about the Russian Revolution. Uh, think about Marxism, communism. Um, these, these, these movements that for good and for ill have aimed at some sort of uh, societal transformation have sought to give the members of society not just something beyond themselves to serve, because, uh, but but they've they have, and here I'm speaking as a theologian. They in some way grope for the sense of self gift as the foundation of personhood. Uh, with uh, with communism, everybody shares and shares alike and nobody owns anything and uh, all differences are erased, all hierarchies are erased and everybody lives in this kind of earthly paradise. Didn't work out that way, but that's part of what they're aiming for, this kind of, this imminent uh, eschaton, the, the, the final resolution of all things. Uh, the, in, the, in the French Revolution too, there's a similar deconstruction of hierarchies, but even without the deconstruction of hierarchies, if we look to what happens at the end of the Roman Empire, uh, how do the medieval cities arrive, uh, arise? Well, in part, uh, power is consolidated and, and there's less strife, but uh, also the who are the custodians of uh, culture and civilization and learning? In, this, in the period of around 600 to 800, it's the monasteries. And in the monasteries, you have this Christian uh, impulse, this Christian, uh, this Christian view of the person as realized not through the suborning of myself to the state, not simply through the erasure of my particular power or, or even the kind of a radical loss of individuality, but the fulfillment of my individuality through the giving of myself to my brethren within the monastery and the collective giving of the brethren to God himself in imitation of Christ who gave himself for us on the cross. Uh, and so I would say, how, do, how does a society renew itself um, when we look to attempts to radically remake society and when we, such as the great revolutions, and when we look to uh, the beginnings of the renewal of a society in the transition between the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages, and all of these have their problems, right? That, that's why they all end up becoming also corrupted and falling apart. But what we do find is that just as within the family unit, just as within a marriage, uh, the path to renewal is the path of um, a sense of oneself as being fully realized through self-gift to another that entails a mutual understanding and a real sharing of life. And so when we ask ourselves in dealing with apparently, but not actually personal AI service providers, what are we to do? 
let's assume that it will be impossible to avoid them in our lives. Uh, I think the solution, uh, which, or at least the beginnings of a solution, which sounds a bit simplistic, but I would argue it's foundational to, to human beings, is to recognize that when I respond empathically to the tool that's been created to serve me, the tool that I pay simply for its service, that empathic response I should neither naively embrace nor attempt to cold-heartedly suppress in order to treat a screwdriver as a screwdriver, uh, but I should recognize that empathic response as my response to the humanity or to the personhood, the subjectivity that is not present in the AI tool, but is signified by the AI tool. And so interacting with the uh, apparently personal artificial intelligence is an opportunity for me to go beyond myself, not necessarily in a kind of self-gift to the AI tool, but at least to a kind of grateful apprehension and empathic recognition of the real human beings, not who have programmed it, but who have served as all the, and we didn't get into this at all, but, but the real human beings whose behavior and self-expression has served as the kind of training data upon which this machine learning derived entity has been trained. Because that's the really persuasive artificial intelligence conversationalists are not going to be created by someone programming in a kind of model grammar and then a conceptual database and how they should respond. Those are always kind of brittle chatbots. And, and even you can think of the, well, you can think of the ELISA program that was this kind of primitive therapist that you could play on the Macintosh in the, the late 80s, early 90s. That, that, those things are always clunky. They always break. The really persuasive entities are going to be the ones that, um, that, have been, that are vast neural networks that have been trained, trained on huge corpuses of texts generated by human behavior. You can think of your autocomplete function in Gmail. That's been trained on you and billions of other people using Gmail. That kind of thing is going to become the source for the persuasive AI conversationalist. So when, when we are responding to the apparently personal AI, it's worthwhile to think about what it is that we're responding to. We're responding to its behavior. And the behavior of the, the persuasive AI conversationalist is uh, going to be derived uh, from uh, vast neural networks being trained on the behavior of real human conversation. Um, if you think about Google's autocomplete function, it, uh, it's, it's not terribly creative, but it often does hit exactly what you, you would expect it to hit. And that's because billions of people using Gmail, uh, I don't know, maybe more, but uh, billions of people using Gmail are, uh, are supplying the end of that sentence. Uh, and so the, the neural networks that Google trains on everything you type into Gmail, uh, it develops a, st a kind of a statistical model of a sort for uh, the kind of thing that's going to be said next, given everything that's been said. Uh, Google does not allow uh, its system to suggest entire paragraphs of text, but I, su I suspect it could. And if it did, they would be plausible paragraphs. They probably just wouldn't necessarily reflect your train of thought, but they would sound like somebody's train of thought, given everything that had been said. And so uh, with, with systems rooted in that kind of really, that, that kind of very rich machine learning, there isn't a mind back there, but there is a, there is 
as you said, Paul, it's a kind of uh, it's a it's a mask without anybody wearing it, but it's an incredible mask. And uh, these systems are only going to get better. Um, that and by better, I don't mean that they're going to become conscious. I just mean better that they're going to become more and more persuasive. Uh, and so, what are we looking at there when we are conversing? When there's some uh, 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 chatting friend app that the uh, that the young teenager is going to spend hours with, unloading his or her uh, feelings about school and friends and everything else uh, to this to this confidant, the 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 particularly tuned response of, of that confidant are going to come from the results of machine learning conducted on large sets of real human behavior. And so what uh, we will be experiencing there is the echo of real human self-expression, is the echo of real human subjectivity being expressed outward in the form of, uh, of conversational behavior. And so what are we to do with that? Uh, neither ought we to numb ourselves to it, nor should we embrace it as being a person there uh, on my on my phone or in my app. But uh, but we should, as I said earlier, we should extend ourselves outward uh, in kind of empathic recognition of the real unknowable humanity, human beings who don't even know that their behavior has tuned this app because uh, it will have happened in some um, in some uh, privacy in terms of service agreement that they will have clicked when using an email program and never read. Uh, but the there, there is nonetheless a kind of real humanity, not a generic humanity, but the aggregate of uncountable specific humanities behind the behavior of these apparently personal AIs. And so it is to that humanity, uh, not simply because it's biological hu biologically human, but because those human beings are authentic persons that can be the, the final, uh, you could say the final targets of our empathy. And the, the more we expand our empathic recognition of personhood beyond the particular AI to the unknowable persons behind it, uh, the more I hope perhaps in that strange paradox of the tool that feels human, we can, uh, we can use it without uh, without allowing our recognition to come to rest in it as if we're using a person. And we can use it without, without uh, dulling our empathy uh, as if we are numb to persons, but we can use it as an echo of personhood. And so we'll never be, we'll never allow ourselves, we'll never allow ourselves to use it as a person who has been reduced to a tool. We will never allow ourselves to sequester it within the frame of reference that uh, that, as Augustine would say, that pride would permit us the reduction of persons to services, um, but we will be taken beyond ourselves and hopefully um, preserve the exercise of our full personhood, uh, even in that uh, that very strange situation. Yeah, one one yeah. point that's that's been hovering in my mind throughout a lot of that. Um, discussion is that I I don't personally consciously anyway resent a lot of things, but I do resent being like you know shoveled down a certain. You know, I've, I've had a discussion with people about on Google specifically, but you know, I I have my own idiosyncratic way in which my mind works, way in which I express myself, and I actually get frustrated with Google search results for whatever reason. 
I don't seem to get what I want. Other people say, oh, yeah, Google knows exactly what I want. Google doesn't know what I want. I get very frustrated with Google. <laughs> why Why did you not parse my you know, search phrase better than this? And, and in some ways, I'm almost like, you know what? I'm almost happy about that. I don't want to be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, even more so, whatever I don't want to be in that scenario, which I can't really articulate at the moment. Um, I prefer my own means of self-expression. And if I, you know, get myself disciplined enough, I think at least on my laptops, on my, you know, computers with a keyboard, you know, when I get around to it, I will remember to turn off the, you know, sentence complete, which thank God there is a, you know, a way to turn it off because I don't, you know, I generally don't use it anyway. It's not the way I want to express myself. Um, it's not the phrasing I want to use. I, you know, my my idiosyncratic reading of 20th century literature when I was young led me to desire to express myself in certain ways that are not what you know the products of the process you were just talking about. Um, and it seems to me kind of strange to go beyond my own personal <laughs> idiosyncrasies and think about: Is there going to be a weird sort of privileging of people you know who lived at the turn of the millennium when this stuff was being digitized and the sort of feedstock was being generated? Are they going to have this outsized influence on the way people express themselves for decades, centuries to come? Because frankly, that sounds very depressing to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, Paul. And we encounter this in our daily lives that we all have certain idiosyncrasies of self-expression. They're rooted in our childhood and young adult formation, or we continue to be flexible as, as we move through life. Okay. Um, and so if if someone speaks in a way that is noticeably different, um, they may come off as uh as as they may seem stilted or 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 it just may may just be an unfamiliar way of speaking but in the end when you or i are speaking to someone we're always speaking to a person we're not speaking to an aggregate when we're dealing with humans and so even if we speak to a particular person who is located firmly in a particular culture and a particular way of speaking, and we speak differently from them. I experience this all the time. I, I talk to college students and they have a certain lingo, a certain, they probably don't even use the word lingo. They have a slang, they have a, they have a way of speaking uh, that, has, that breaks grammatical rules in certain consistent ways, uh, but it's different from the casual mode of speech that I had uh, when I was speaking with um, my friends in sixth grade in college when we began you know, speaking in a particular way that was a kind of degradation from standard grammar or eloquent speech, but was part of being a member of that tribe. <laughs> uh, but so let's say I'm, I'm speaking from within such a group or speaking to a member of such a group. In the end, I am speaking to a particular individual and that particular individual can adjust their own expectations to understand me. And I can adjust my experience, my expectations and habits to be understood by them or to understand them. When I'm dealing with Google's autocomplete or when I'm dealing with some future conversational AI that's been trained on a broad population, it's going to be a different story. And because there I won't be interacting with a particular individual, I'll be interacting with a, a, a parent individual that is in fact a kind of aggregate or, or a sort of 
I don't want to say st- statistical mean. I, I use that very loosely, but but it's but it's drawn forth from from this large population, and to be um, to be really serviceable, these AIs will have to adjust their way of speaking to the the speech of the of the end user. Otherwise, they'll seem perpetually unfamiliar. But at the same time, if we think more broadly, not just to using a particular app on our phones, but to a world in which conversational AI is providing many of our services, a world in which perhaps, uh, you know, I I think like years down the line, uh, it it will be at first, it will be uh, very wealthy people who can hire the robotic tutor to be the perfect piano teacher for their child. But further years down the line, it will actually probably or at least conceivably be uh, poor communities in public schools it, that uh, that don't get to have a real human teacher, but instead have a Department of Education approved uh, teacher bot that is going to deliver the curriculum in just the ways that psychological research have shown are, are perfect for learning. And, and who knows, it, in many respects, such a, such a teacher might be an advance over, over the uh, over over what might be available, but there will be something lost, and uh, and but in such not to get into that issue, but in such a world in which we are regularly interacting with conversational partners who don't have that uh, particular individuality of their own, uh, perhaps we may be educated into a more smoothed out, uh, flattened out mode of speech. Uh, than the uh, the one that we have now, which which bears witness the way my children express themselves bears witness to the fact that one of their parents uh, grew up largely in the American South. Uh, that would be my wife, and I was born to Midwestern parents uh, in California, and then moved to the East Coast. Um, so the just my children have this funny accent that has the the nasal Midwestern quality that I have. Uh, combined with uh, this uh, this this kind of southern, not quite a twang, but there's a certain thud to, to the way certain words are expressed. There's a certain forcefulness that that kind of resonance that that in the background I can hear a sort of you know young male expression of my wife's slight, very slight southern accent. Uh, those things will be unless there's a kind of hyper regional. Uh, customization of these of these AIs, those things may be smoothed out of our of our uh, speech. I think of the um, the same thing in television and radio. Uh, there was a certain radio voice that was adopted by radio announcers in the early through the uh, mid twentieth century, and in movies too. I think it was called the the mid Atlantic accent or something like that. And it was a like, well. It was that kind of slightly British, uh, somewhat choppy, forceful way of speaking that worked well for the recording equipment that they had at the time. Uh, but then that was abandoned uh, in favor of just people's normal voices. Uh, similarly, in Britain, there is the BBC accent that was the kind of the standard Queen's English accent. Uh, and then that was that there was a pushback against that, I think in the seventies or something in favor of regional accents. Um, So there's this, we've already been dealing with this tension between a broad standardization and a respect for regionality. Uh, Now that regional television stations are, are 
gone or fast going in favor of streaming services. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to regional American accents, especially since kids watch so much TV. So in, in some respects, the dynamic that you are articulating is, is something, is a tension we've already been dealing with and the pervasiveness of media and our contact with it uh, shapes the way we speak, shapes the particular words that we choose to think. And I guess you could argue this is going on since the invention of the written word, but it will certainly, it's certainly accelerated in the age of electronic media. And it's going to continue to accelerate when the particular apparent individuals that we're dealing with and perhaps even being educated or raised by uh, are going to be um, the outcome of, of kind of aggregates rather than uh, particular life experiences. That's fascinating, yeah. Um, the the point you just it was a phrase that you used uh, it uh, uh, the the danger of uh, or the possibility of uh, this uh, AI not only shaping the words that we say but also shaping the words that we think that that was kind of going through my head as you as you spoke because I, that would be kind of the next. Uh, kind of a risky step that I would foresee coming from uh, the Googleization of speech. Um, I'm thinking of what's called cancel culture and things like that, where uh, if we if we um, make this uh, a friend of a, an AI uh, person um, uh, who's who's got a lot of uh, uh, influence over us on things like our the accent that we use, et cetera. Um, something like uh, what subjects that friendly AI person avoids or emphasizes could be built into that algorithm or whatever, it, such that uh, we find ourselves never thinking about or talking about what that AI personality doesn't want us to... Uh, to think about, right? So that would be, uh, uh, we don't want to empathize with such an, an AI personality that deeply. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, Bill, that's a that's a really interesting point that, right, not just our accents, not just the way we speak, but the certain topics that are available for conversation uh, could be shaped by our, uh, by our dominant culture, or at least by the culture of those who are producing these AIs for consumption. And it could even be seen as a kind of uh, uh, ethical, um, as a kind of ethical imperative that uh, for the sake of, you know, redressing uh, certain injustices, we, we should be shaping people to speak or think a certain way. And we certainly do this within the family. Parents want to shape their children's moral imagination uh, for good. And uh, sometimes they do for good, sometimes they don't. It's usually a mix. Uh, and the same is probably going to be true at a larger societal scale. And I think that uh, it's always, what the dominant discourse is going to be is always going to be a question of who's in power to some extent. And so although we want to live in a society in which we can rely upon the values of the society to shape us and to show our children a, the way forward as flourishing human beings. At the same time, we can't. And so there remains for each of us, and I would say this is true, we could, we could sort of 
look to this whole conversation we've been having, we can say that for each of us, there remains the responsibility to be uh, individuals who who are seekers of the truth and and uh, seekers of the good, which which requires of us a deep discernment, a deep reflection, a uh, a confrontation between ourselves and unfamiliar ideas, which does not mean a naive embrace of them. It means a real critical. Uh, uh, a critical reflection upon them. We allow ourselves to be uh, criticized by the the world that we encounter. We don't just expect things to be served up according to our desires. And when, uh, by the same token, we find ourselves being shaped and reshaped by the educative uh, influences out there, whether it be in popular culture or in uh, our children's AI teachers, then it falls to us also to be aware of those things and to to seek uh, by by conscience, and uh, if we're if we're Christians by Christian faith, uh, the the path of the truth, and to recognize that in the end, if we take seriously the claim that we are persons and not merely masks, then there is an element of us that cannot finally be absolutely determined, absolutely constructed by our surrounding culture. We can be formed by it, but we are not constructed by it. And so there remains always for us the possibility of transcending it. We can forget, but we cannot in the end lose uh, the full measure of our human personhood. We can and we do regularly forget some significant share of it. And again, that's not necessarily new. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, this has been a really fascinating conversation. We're really glad you were able to make the time for it. This has been great. And we would definitely um, encourage you, if you liked any of this conversation, to definitely go back and, uh, and, and uh, look at your talk at the Society of Catholic Scientists website uh, for the 2021 conference. Um, all the speakers, uh, video um, and audio, I believe, is posted now. I don't think we had any. Do we have any? Uh, well, I mean, but all or almost all. Um, of the of the audio is up there by now. This, the, I think video and audio. So, so yeah, no, that's that's been great, and we really appreciate you making the time to be on the podcast today, Jordan. Well, thanks very much, uh, Paul and Bill. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, and uh, this was really fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host, Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.